Good morning. If you will open your Bibles to John chapter 3. John chapter 3. We'll begin in verse 22 and read through verse 36. John chapter 3, beginning in verse 22. Here we go. John chapter 3, verses 22 through 36. Grace Church, hear the word of the Lord. After these things, Jesus and his disciples came into the land of Judea. And there he was spending time with them and baptizing. John also was baptizing in Anon and Selim, because there was much water there, and people were coming and were being baptized. For John had not yet been thrown into prison. Therefore, there arose a discussion on the part of John's disciples with the Jew about purification. And there came to John, excuse me, and they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you beyond the Jordan, to whom you have testified, behold, he is baptizing, and all are coming to him. And John answered and said, A man can receive nothing unless it has been given him from heaven. And you yourselves are my witnesses that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent ahead of him. He who has the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. So this joy of mine has been made full. He must increase, but I must decrease. He who comes from above is above all, and he who is of the earth is from the earth and speaks of the earth. He who comes from heaven is above all. And what he has seen and heard, of that he testifies. And no one receives his testimony. He who has received his testimony has set his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent speaks the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. He who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son will not see life but the wrath of God abides on him. Well, we want to zero in this morning. Our aim is this. By divine compulsion, we must live a life that denies self and exalts Christ for our joy and for God's glory. I'll say it again. By divine compulsion, we must live a life that denies self and exalts Christ for our joy and God's glory. Jesus has no rival. He is unmatched. Jesus is unparalleled. He's unequaled. He's unsurpassed. He's incomparable. He is supreme. He stands alone in position and power. He is altogether lovely. His character is flawless. His actions are perfect. 
His wisdom is impeccable. He is the only begotten God, the firstborn of all creation. He is God with us. He is the King of glory. There's no second place to Jesus. There's an ex expanse between Jesus and the rest of humanity that is immeasurable. And even so, Jesus himself does, does identify for us what he says is the greatest man born of women. In Matthew eleven eleven, it says, Truly I say to you, Jesus speaking, among those born of women, there has not arisen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Yet, the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. If there was a second place, a distant one, John the Baptist would be that man. And I believe the primary reason for John's greatness is because of his denial of self and his exaltation of Jesus, his low view of self and high view of God. In Matthew 11, Jesus exalts John the Baptist as the greatest among men, and then he gives us insight into the measure by which men are measured. Yet, the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Humility clearly was the measuring metric for Jesus identifying greatness in a man. And ironically, that is exactly why Jesus professed John as the greatest man. Today, we want to see in the text three things about John the Baptist that made him great. We want to see three things in the text that made John the Baptist great. Here they are. His life's posture. His life's joy and his life's aim. So we want to look at John the Baptist's posture, his joy, and his aim. As we read verses 22 through 26 at the beginning of the sermon, we saw that John the Evangelist, the human author of this inspired gospel, not John the Baptist, but the Evangelist, sets the scene for us. Following Jesus' gospel dialogue with Nicodemus, which we've heard over the last couple of weeks, Jesus leaves Jerusalem and goes into the countryside of Judea. And it appears here that Jesus endeavors to spend more time with his disciples, which I would mention a sidebar to say that that's a com key component of discipleship. That Jesus would spend time with his disciples while John the Baptist doing the same with his disciples, continued to press forward in his ministry of calling people to repent and be baptized. John the Baptist was further south in Samaria, which was indicated by the two villages mentioned in the text. And John the writer mentions that John the Baptist has not yet been thrown into prison because it establishes a time frame following the baptism of Jesus where he and John the Baptist, Jesus and John the Baptist, were simultaneously doing ministry, though not together. And like a young cage stage Calvinist, John the Baptist's disciples were adamant about their rabbi's baptism. That it was symbolic of being cleansed by God. 
And so a debate arises between John's disciples and a Jew, probably an educated Jew who most likely held to the old sacrificial system for the forgiveness of sins. And this discussion regarding purification strikes up. And it appears in the midst of this debate that John's disciples are made aware that Jesus and his disciples are baptizing further north. And the crowds of which Jesus' disciples are baptizing are much larger than those of John the Baptist and his disciples. And so probably in a moment of competitive frustration, John's disciples use an exaggeration in terminology in verse 26 when they proclaim that all are coming to Jesus is the language that they use. And we know this is simply not true because the same text tells us that people are still coming to John the Baptist to be baptized. Using our sanctified imagination here, we can assume that the larger crowds that were accompanying Jesus and his disciples that were being baptized, that number being over and above that of John, John's baptisms, John's disciples are obviously flustered here perhaps because John had preceded Jesus in this particular ministry. John was baptizing before Jesus. This is your baby, John. This is what you do. And yet, after you baptized Jesus, you were the baptizer of Jesus. Now he's stilling the crowd. John's response to his disciples is where we begin to see what made John a great man in the eyes of Jesus. Look with me in verse 27. It says, John answered and said, a man can receive nothing unless it has been given him from heaven. John's retort to his own disciples begins with a universal timeless truth. No man has received anything except by the grace of God. God must give and we must receive if we were to have anything at all. God is the giver, we are the receivers. John knew his ministry was from God. He had no reason to be threatened by Jesus and he certainly wasn't threatened by Jesus because the ministry that John had from beginning to end was always given to him by God. Therefore, he could only receive the ministry call that was given him. He even gently requires his disciples to remember his very clear testimony about Jesus. He says in verse 28, You yourselves are my witnesses that I said I am not the Christ, but I have been sent ahead of him. Congregation, you would do well to make John's confession often. I am not the Christ. I don't think anybody would go around and make that proclamation, at least not verbally. I mean, we wouldn't say those words, right? But I think it would be helpful for us to say what John said, I am not the Christ. But more importantly, I think we should live a life 
that preaches the reality that I am not the Christ. Husbands, fathers, this is especially true in your home. You are not the Christ. Jesus alone has that title. And it doesn't only apply to men. That's just one particular instance where we would never say that we're the Christ, but often we may act that way. And it certainly would apply to anyone in this room who would try to assume some lordship role in whatever particular arena it may be. Life is worship, and our life should reflect that Jesus is the Christ and that he alone is the Christ. I know that we would all agree that that's our theology, but practically speaking, does our life preach the gospel? When people look at you, do they see the reality that Jesus is Lord? John the Baptist, a great man, worthy of honor, very humbly embraced, not his potential fame and success that certainly could have come with the ministry that he had. But he embraced the calling to exalt Christ above all else by being a temporary forerunner to Jesus. The posture of John the Baptist was a posture of humility. It was a posture of humility. He never looked at his ministry in terms of his success, but rather as a plain calling from God to a very specific task. Prepare the way for Jesus. Dear saints, let's, let's adopt John's humility. Let's embrace God's calling on our life and be spent exalting the name of Jesus together. So I want you to see about John. The first thing that makes him great is his posture of humility. The second thing that I want you to see is the joy of John the Baptist. What was his life's joy? Look with me in verse 29. He says, he who has the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hear him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. So this joy of mine has been made full. I love this illustration that John uses to explain to his disciples his place in ministry. John had no doubt considered this illustration before his disciples had approached him. It was embedded in his mind. The church was not his bride. The church did not belong to John. As many as may have repented under his preach word, and as many as he may have had the privilege to baptize, none of those belonged to John. He knew his place. What an honor it was for John to be the bridegroom's friend. But he knew the bridegroom friend dare not put his hands on the bride of Christ. He was a friend to the bridegroom, a equivalent to today's best man, but he knew he was not to stand center stage. John knew his place. God had given John the Baptist a special place of honor in which he took great delight because he was able to stand next to the bridegroom and hear him. John the Baptist took 
exceedingly great joy because he was able to hear the voice of Jesus, not just verbally himself, but when it says the voice of the bridegroom was heard, what that means is Jesus' ministry had begun. And John was around to see it come to fruition. The voice of Jesus in this text is not the actual audible hearing that John experiences, but rather the testimony that many were coming to Jesus to repent and be baptized by his disciples. John the Baptist was rejoicing that that Jesus' ministry had begun, that the voice of God was thundering on the countryside of Judea. And John was elated. His joy was full. He wasn't just happy. It says he was full of joy. And he rejoiced. John the Baptist says, so this joy of mine has been made full. What delighted John more than anything in this world? What was his greatest joy? Jesus. That Jesus was preaching the good news of himself to the world. What joy must have filled his heart to hear that his forerunning had accomplished its goal. That Jesus' way had been made. And his ministry had begun. That it was adequately prepared for him to begin. And now a a voice much greater than John the Baptist was ringing out. Dear saints, let's follow John's lead and find joy in the furtherance of the gospel. The proclamation of Jesus' name throughout the world. What should delight you more than anything on this planet is to know that others are coming to faith in Jesus Christ because the gospel continues to press forward. But I want you to see the third thing about John that makes him great. Not just his posture of humility or his joy in Christ, but his life's aim. John chapter 3, verse 30. As Matt said, the theme of today's service. He must increase, but I must decrease. Jesus must increase but I must decrease. See, John knows at this point that his ministry has changed in a very significant way. John's ministry changes because the forerunning is complete. He's no longer the forerunner. He's still going to preach the gospel. He's still going to baptize. He doesn't cease to serve Christ, but his ministry has shifted. He's not the forerunner anymore. He's no longer cutting a path but ministering simultaneously to Jesus himself. And the ministry changes because the number of people coming to him is now decreasing, as it had already begun to do. And John knew full well his ministry would fade into the background as Jesus' ministry began to move forward. John knew that he must decrease and that Jesus would increase. I've read this verse many times. I've heard it quoted. It's probably a lot of people's tagline on their emails or whatever else. It's such a short verse that packs in so much content. But I thoroughly enjoyed reading commentary this week on this verse. You've probably heard us quote Leon Morris and D.A. Carson more than once as we've marched through John because their commentaries on the Gospel of John are just well written and so rich in content. But this is what Leon Moore says. He says, there is a compelling divine necessity behind this expression. 
he must increase. Must increase. I must decrease. And D.A. Carson says this, the must is nothing less than the determined will of God. They both were emphasizing the must here, the requirement, the command. And though this verse certainly stands as a command, for John the Baptist, this was not a begrudging surrender. Again, this was great joy to him. He gloriously, joyfully embraced God's calling and will for his life to decrease. You must decrease, John. You must decrease, dear saint. John's life was not about him. It was about Jesus. I think Scripture teaches this, right? Galatians 2.20, perhaps. I have been crucified with Christ. When you get crucified, it's not about you anymore. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. The life which I now live, the old life being dead at crucifixion, the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith. Where? In the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself up for me. That great love. If the Jesus identified greatest man on earth believed that he should decrease then we would do well to follow John's aim in life and spend our vapor of a life exalting the name of Jesus and gladly disappearing into the background for all to see Christ instead and though I have framed this sermon by three things about John the Baptist that made him great his life's posture his life's joy and his life's aim it's clear that the sermon text is not about John the Baptist at all. The text and John's life are about Christ. They're about Christ. So I want to shift directions and jump right into what I hope is helpful application though there is again debate concerning exactly whose words these are in the text from verses 31 to 36 whether this was John the Baptist continuing to communicate to his disciples or whether this is John the evangelist the writer here expounding on what John the Baptist had has already said is really no matter. We know God is the ordained source. But here in John 3, the remainder of the text simply does what John the Baptist did in his life, which was prayed earlier in the service and said very clearly, the point of this text is that we must exalt Jesus. And that's exactly what John the writer and John the Baptist are certainly pointing to here. Look with me in verse 31. It says, He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth is from the earth and speaks of the earth. He who comes from heaven is above all. What he has seen, that's Jesus, what Jesus has seen and heard, of that he testifies, and no one receives his testimony. See, Jesus 
must, not should, not could, but Jesus must be exalted because he is unrivaled. He's worthy of exaltation. He is above all. He's not created. He has no earthly origin because he is preexistent. He has no beginning. He proceeds from the heavens where he is, has existed in unbroken fellowship with the Holy Trinity. Jesus sees and hears from within the council of the triune God. So when it says he sees and hears, it's talking about his relationship with the Father and the Holy Spirit that we can't possibly comprehend the depths of in our finite minds here on earth. And he's making that very clear. He's above all in every respect. No man, including the great John the Baptist, could fathom these depths. The depths of Jesus. Similar to God's response to Job when Job inquired of God, only to discover that his mere presence, it says in Job 38, darkened the counsel of God. John the Baptist was no different. The great John the Baptist darkened the counsel of the Trinity. So we see here that within the Godhead is a seen and heard counsel of only three. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And it's clear that the expanse between Jesus and John the Baptist or any other human being is immeasurable. Jesus is above all. So we should, application, exalt Jesus as superior. We should all, always see him that way. Is Jesus a friend to us? Yes. But let's not mistake his friendship for a lack of superiority. He is superior in every way. The second piece of application that I want you to see is not just to exalt Christ as superior, but to exalt Christ through faith. Look with me in verse 33. He says, he who has received his testimony has set his seal to this. That God is true. That God is true. Let's be simple here. If you believe the words of Jesus, you believe the words of God. Because Jesus' words are God's words. Put your faith in Jesus. His words are trustworthy because they are the words of God. And if you believe the words of God, then you believe God is who he says he is. And God says he is the truth. So that when you believe in Jesus, you believe in the truth. Doesn't Jesus say that? I am the way, the truth. So let's exalt Christ by putting faith in him. Let's take Jesus at his word. The third piece of application that I want you to see that all falls under the head of exalt Christ. Exalt Christ as superior, exalt Christ through faith, and exalt Christ as omnipotent. He is all-powerful look with me in verse 34 it says for he whom God has sent speaks the words of God for he gives the spirit without measure for he gives the spirit without measure it is true that Christians are given the Holy Spirit freely upon conversion 
But I believe in this verse, the receiving the Spirit without measure is what would be true of Jesus. This verse is about his receiving the Holy Spirit without measure. John the Baptist and every other biblical spokesman from the prophets of old to the apostles that we find in the New Testament were given the Spirit according to the measure necessary for their God-given task at hand. God always equipped his mouthpiece with all the grace and Holy Spirit necessary to preach the good news or to proclaim the truth that God intended for them to preach. However, the measure by which the Spirit is given to the Son is different. It's vastly different. Jesus has the Holy Spirit without measure. Man was made to be filled by the Spirit, make no mistake about it, and to know his presence and his power. And saints, we should pursue that endeavor without any hesitation. We should go hard after that endeavor. But this Spirit filling that we read about in John chapter 3 is especially so of Jesus, who is holy, blameless, pure, and set apart from sinners. Nothing in Jesus offends or grieves the indwelling of the Holy Spirit of God. There is a radical difference between the indwelling of the Spirit in Christ and that in the believer. What do I mean by that? I mean by that even in the most holy and gracious and obedient Christian believer, the Holy Spirit always meets with the resistance of evil. That old sin nature wants to challenge the Spirit within us. All you have to do is thumb through the New Testament and we see this conflict from beginning to end. No Christian has ever filled to abundant fullness with the Spirit the way that Jesus was filled to perfection with the Holy Spirit above measure and without limit. In humanity, the Holy Spirit meets with ego, self-centeredness, which opposes God, but Jesus is entirely different. There's no opposition. The Spirit flows freely within the life of Jesus Christ. Jesus' human nature was ready always to give perfect cooperation to all the promptings of the Holy Spirit. And we've already seen some of those in the early chapters of John, the Gospel. So I want you to see that we should exalt Jesus as uniquely filled by the Holy Spirit. And we should long for the greatest measure of the Spirit that Jesus can give us. Once you see a fourth piece of application, not only should we exalt Christ as superior, not only should we exalt Jesus through faith in him, not only should we exalt Jesus as omnipotent, full of the power of the Holy Spirit, but listen to this, we should exalt Christ as the Father's beloved. Look at verse 35. What sweet, sweet, sweet words. The Father loves the Son. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Saints, worship Jesus as the beloved Son of God. Worship Jesus as the beloved Son of God. I challenge you this week to meditate upon the Father's special love for his only begotten Son. Consider it. Give attention to the Father's love of the Son this week. And as you do, 
Praise God that Jesus has been entrusted with all things, including your life, including your salvation. Exalt Christ as the Father's beloved. I want you to see the fifth exaltation of Christ that we should certainly walk away with as application from today's text. Look with me in verse 36. It says this, He who believes in the Son has eternal life. But he who does not obey the Son will not see life. But the wrath of God abides on him. Congregation, if you missed the first four points of application, ways that we ought to exalt or reasons that we should exalt Christ, do not miss this one. Everyone listen. Students, children, adults, listen. If you believe upon the name of Jesus, you will have eternal life. If you will believe upon the name of Jesus, you will have eternal life. That's God's word. That's not Brian Smith's promise to you. The authority of God's word tells us that that is true. But I want you to be warned. Continue to listen. If you reject the merciful invitation of God to be saved through the gracious work of Jesus upon the cross. So when it tells you to believe upon the name of Jesus, it means believe every word that he ever said. It means believe that what he did for you on the cross when he willingly and obediently and humbly allowed men to hang him on a cross and crucify him, it was the will of God that he do so. So that his blood would be shed because God's word tells us that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. So that when Jesus was being crucified, his blood was paying the price for your sins. It means that we believe that. That our sins have been atoned for. And that when God looks at us, he doesn't see sinful, rebellious, God-hating men anymore. He sees men who put their faith in Jesus and therefore he sees the righteousness of Christ, that perfect, blameless, holy one that we spoke about earlier. We believe in his name, we believe in what he says, and we believe in what he's done. We believe in him as a person. So be warned that if you reject this merciful invitation of God, that he would send his son on your behalf, if you reject that merciful invitation to have your sins forgiven and to be saved, then you will not just face God's wrath. But more devastatingly, it says God's wrath will abide on you. It's not just this one horrible confrontation that you'll have with the wrath of God. His wrath will abide on you forever. It stays and stays and stays for all eternity. All for the price of rejecting his gracious salvation to you. And there is salvation in no one else. There is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. There's one name, Jesus. Jesus saves. Therefore, we should exalt Christ as our Savior. Exalt Christ as superior. Exalt Christ through faith in Jesus, 
exalt him as omnipotently powerful, exalt Jesus as the Father's beloved, and exalt Jesus as your Savior. Jesus has no rival. He is unmatched, unparalleled, unequaled, unsurpassed. He is incomparable. He is supreme. He stands alone in position and power. He is altogether lovely. His character is flawless. His actions are perfect. His wisdom is impeccable. He is the only begotten God, the firstborn of all creation. He is God with us. He is the king of glory. And like John the Baptist, by divine compulsion, we must live a life that denies self and exalts Christ for our joy and his glory. Let's pray. Father, what good news. What good news that we have eternal life in Jesus. That we were not left in our sin, but that Christ intervened. That he was crucified and resurrected so that we might be saved. Father, I pray for the saints in this room right now that they will be like John the Baptist that they would decrease, that we would decrease, that Christ would increase. And Father, I pray for those in this room who have not put their faith in Jesus. What a clear invitation your word has laid before us this morning. Jesus saves those who believe in his name. Father, I pray that you would grant faith and repentance this morning. Perhaps students who've heard the truth, are sitting in chairs this morning and they know that Jesus is the only way to be saved. Father, I pray that you would grant them the faith to believe, that you would grant them repentance. Father, I pray that today would be the day of salvation. Father, would you do that gracious work in this Advent season? And we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.